Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Good day, everyone, and welcome to episode one of Weber Wenzel's Fraud Podcast series. Joining me today is Zelda Swanepoel, a partner in the financial regulatory team at Weber Wenzel, as well as Lionel van Tonder, a director at Weber Wenzel's forensic services team. And today we'll be focusing on fraudulent claims submitted in the public and private sectors, specifically looking at fraudulent insurance claims in general, and then in the private and the public sector, fraudulent claims that are instituted at the Unemployment Insurance Fund and also the Social Security Agency. Um, Welcome, Lionel and Zelda. So, Lionel, to start us off and as an introduction to the topic, could you please provide us with an overview of what is the definition of fraud and what are the elements of the uh, crime of fraud or the offense of fraud in, in South Africa? Yes, thank you for the question. So in the South African context, fraud is a common law offense and it can be defined as the unlawful and intentional making of a misrepresentation which causes actual prejudice or which is potentially prejudice to another. To sum that up, Fraud comprises the following four elements. Firstly, unlawfulness. This is the action that must be seen to be wrong in the eyes of society. Then you have the misrepresentation. That is a false statement made by one person to another. This misrepresentation may take the form of words, words and conduct, or just conduct. And also, a misrepresentation may also be a failure to disclose certain information in circumstances where there is a duty to do so. Then you have the intent. The person making the misrepresentation must have intended or foreseen that the victim would be deceived. And then lastly, the prejudice element. A party must have suffered harm as a result of action. The victim would have suffered prejudice by reason of altering his position to his detriment after relying upon the misrepresentation. In our law, potential prejudice is also sufficient if it's necessary and reasonably possible that the victim relying on the misrepresentation would have suffered uh, harm. Thank you, Lionel. Um, and from your experience, uh, what would be the, the common reasons why people, individuals would, would commit fraud? What is the reasoning behind someone's decision to, to take that step to actually commit the offense? Yeah, so Chris, the easiest way to explain this is actually at the hand of the commonly known fraud triangle. It outlines three components that contribute to increasing the risk of fraud. And that is, there must be an opportunity, there must be incentive, and there must be rationalization. So opportunity refers to circumstances that allow fraud to occur. And interesting, in the fraud triangle, it is the only component that a company exercises complete control over. Examples that provide opportunities for committing fraud include the following. If there's weak internal controls, such as poor separation of duties, lack of supervision, and poor documentation of processes. That would create opportunity. Furthermore, a poor tone at the top, which refers to upper management and the board of directors' commitment to being ethical, showing integrity, and being honest. A poor tone at the top, of course, results in a company that's more susceptible to fraud. Also, inadequate accounting policies 
which refer to how items on the financial statements are recorded. Poor or inadequate accounting policies may provide an opportunity for employees to manipulate numbers. On the incentive part, incentive alternatively called pressure refers to an employee's mindset towards committing fraud. For example, bonuses are sometimes based on financial metrics such as revenue and net income. So fraud may be committed to up the revenue and the net income to earn a higher bonus. Another example of incentive is in these financial dire states, employees may be in financial distress and may commit fraud to relieve that from them. And then you have the rationalization element that refers to an employee's justification for committing fraud. Most fraud perpetrators don't view themselves as criminals. Instead, they justify their actions. In the example of the employee in financial distress, that person may say, I've been working here for 30 years. I don't get bonuses. They don't pay me enough. All these reasons to justify committing the fraud. Thank you, Lionel. Zelda, from your engagements and experience in the regulatory space, how rife or prevalent would you would you say is fraud within both the life and non-life insurance space? Yes, uh, a very difficult thing actually for both the life and non-life sector to deal with. Um, it's absolutely no secret that insurance fraud has been around for a very long time. And it certainly seems to be on the increase, probably or largely attributable to financial and economic circumstances in South Africa. And Lionel spoke a little bit about the rationalization or motivation for defrauding an insurer, but whatever that that rationalization may be, it must always be borne in mind and taken into account that fraud remains fraud, the offense that Lionel spoke about, and it's a criminal offense. And obviously, it carries significant implications for the person who's convicted of it. And to just maybe give an example of some common examples of fraudulent conduct in the insurance market. It's, for instance, where a person creates a false insurance policy or insures assets uh, that doesn't exist. Or another example um, that's common is where, and that's something that really happens often, is where people pad um, insurance claims. For instance, where a true loss is suffered, but in addition to the loss suffered in a home, the person says they've also um, lost a cell phone or a bracelet or whatever the case may be. All of these are contributing factors to um, insurance companies having really high levels of insurance fraud in both the life and non-life industry. Another example in the life side is um, is where people, where there's large syndicates um, of um, companies who perpetrate fraud on life insurance policies by creating fraudulent policies on the lives of, of persons who people have no insurable interest in. Um, so, yes, certainly a major issue for insurance company and a really big contributor to a lot of cost for insurance companies to investigate these, um, these um, frauds committed and to then ultimately pay or decline to pay out the claim. Thank you, Zelda. Um, that was a very, very uh, elaborate explanation of the instances of fraud in the life and non-life space. Could you possibly broadly categorize these instances of insurance fraud into, you know, uh, broad headings or categories? Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Christopher. Um, So generally, we would say we categorize these kind of frauds into three categories. um, And I'll briefly mention what they are and then explain each. So the first is fraudulently unfounded claims. And that's typically where the entire claim is just fraudulent. 
Then a fraudulent exaggerated claim is clear, clearly where the claim is exaggerated. The example that I gave of um, a theft occurs in your house, but you exaggerate the either what was stolen or the value of the item. Um, and generally, the insurance companies are only liable for the actual loss and not for the exaggerated part. So the third, third category is then um, a valid claim accompanied by fraudulent means. So, so the claim itself is perfectly valid. However, the manner in which the claim was instituted was done by fraudulent means. Um, and in that instances, the insurer may remain liable for the entire loss pursuant to the claim. Thanks so much, Zelda and Lionel. These are really, really great insights. Um, we have now come to the end of episode one of the four-part Webber Fraud podcast series. All of these episodes will be uploaded to our website and will also be made available on our social media pages. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.